Hello and welcome to Cruising Through History. My name is Xander. I'm sitting here with Scott Cruz. Scott, where are we cruising through today? Well, today, Xander, I thought I would talk about drug use in the Third Reich. Okay, so we're talking about drugs. We're talking about drugs, yes. All right, and I mean, we, I, I think something we've kind of known is that, um, that like Nazis in Germany developed a lot of chemistry um, yes. and medicine, but right. was drug use like a thing? Well, it's really interesting because it's always been kind of a offshoot when you're researching the Third Reich or, or Hitler in particular and the Nazis. It wasn't until about 2015 a writer named Norman Oler wrote a book called Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich, and his... His theory, which hasn't been accepted by a lot of people, is that Hitler was on so many different drugs that this was affecting how he was thinking about the war. And it got worse as it went on. Now, there's a whole backstory to all this. And you mentioned Germany. Well, before World War I, Germany was like the leading exporter of morphine, cocaine, and heroin. And what what you call heroin. So like, but cocaine and things like heroin, those weren't like outlawed banned no, drugs no, no. at the time. They weren't. No. So, in fact, they were in some cases they were the only exporter because they had a huge pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. um, that was. In fact, it was a, a, a chemist in Germany. I think he was a Romanian chemist actually, who discovered amphetamine. And ironically, in the 19th century, it was also a a Japanese chemist who came who discovered methamphetamine, which he had taken out of something called ephedrine. And so these these things are going on in the 19th century. You also get the development of the syringe, which is a faster way to give someone uh, drugs instead of pills or whatever. So wait, syringes weren't a thing back really? Not not widely used before that? Not well, they weren't really perfected to like the 19th century. I think it's like 1865 where you first hear the term hypodermic. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, we, I think they were easier to, you know, put in veins. We think of you know, when we think of injections now, we think of the modern thin needle and all that and mm-hmm. you're looking at these old things thinking, I wouldn't want that. <laughs> I would want a shot from that. Let's just say that because it was a thicker, uh, thicker needle. Okay, so Germany had all of, a lot of these medical breakthroughs. Plus, they had the industrial capacity to make all these things. Mass, yeah, mass, mass make them. Because so they had, they had a lot of industry, a lot of medical knowledge, people working on that, and then Japan support. And so, let's. How did what is talk but about? I think Blitz? the the. The Japanese discovery of methamphetamine, I think it was just a chemist who, they didn't start producing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so how we get to where we are in the Weimar Republic had a fairly, which was after World War One, the Weimar Republic is established. They had a fairly lenient attitude toward drug use. But the problem was you had a lot of World War One veterans who were addicted to things like morphine mm-hmm. because of their injuries. So suddenly you have a lot of addicts and you have to figure out how to to treat them and and, and how much they can have for their pain. Because basically a lot of people were taking it for that. 
Um, you also had, you know, the Roaring Twenties. I mean, we had the Roaring Twenties in the United States. They also had Berlin was like one of the wildest places during the 1920s for drugs. And so you have all this going on. But it was funny because the Nazis and the communists took a, both took a more of a stringent view on drug use because they thought it was hurt your moral character. And for the Nazis, this kind of plays right into the, you know, you're a drug addict because you're weaker. You know, you have, you're, you're inferior. An Aryan shouldn't have to take drugs because we're already superior. Mm-hmm. And so you have, I mean, they would call cocaine a Jewish degeneration drug. Or they would make blanket statements like, Druze are drug addicts because they're inferior to us. So this kind of works, this plays into that. And so the Nazis, they would, you know, look. let's take Hitler, for example. Here's a guy who was a teetotaler. He didn't smoke, he didn't drink, and he was a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So, to, you, know, you know, so they wanted the rest of society to sort of be like that too. But, of course, that's hard to do. As we know, people like their alcohol, they like whatever. And so um, what happens, though, is as we get into the 1930s, Hitler meets a doctor named Theodore Morell. And it's funny because the rest of the Nazi leadership, like Himmler and Goering and Goebbels, they kind of think of this Dr. Morell as a quack. He's basically like a doctor feel good. He just puts stuff into a needle or into a syringe and puts it in you, and you feel better. Mm-hmm. Of course, no one's really paying any attention to what's in this stuff. Yeah, there's, there isn't like boards of medical reviews and no. journals and people qualifying your work. He's and, just doing it. And why Hitler became so enamored with him was that in 1936, when he met him, Hitler was having terrible stomach problems. And so one of the things, there was two things that he was giving. One was sort of like a probiotic, which I didn't, you know, we, a lot of people use it now. It's kind of the same deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called Mutaflor. And that's, but he also gave him these things called Dr. Kester's anti-gas pills. <laughs> Doctor, wow. I, you almost picture like a, a medicine show kind of deal, you know, on the bottle. Yeah, I'm imagining ads for that right now. And right, and so, the, but the key ingredients in both, in the gas pills were, a belladonna, which is nightshade, which is a dangerous toxic plant, okay. which I think was in Harry, one of the Harry Potter movies they talked about. Yep. It. And strychnine was one of the other ingredients in it. So Hitler would take like 16 pills a day of this concoction. 16 pills? Eight, Not... eight to 16 pills a day since 1936. I mean, he took them every day. Okay. That's a lot of pills um, to be going through. That had to affect him like there's no way yes it'll get much worse as we go along here because there's two tracks going here and i don't want to confuse our listeners there's hitler's drug use which we'll talk about but there is also the administering of drugs to the troops Mm -hmm. yes i know i mean the argument has been well you know the british forces and american forces use amphetamines too they did and benzedrine was a pill they used in the in the u.s army Call them bennies. But this was more of a systematic testing. And so in 1938, there's a drug called Pervitin. That's the name brand. It's an over-the-counter stimulant that is is actually marketed to a civilian uh, market. Okay. 
In fact, it even gets so absurd that they make Previtin, Previtin chocolate. So there's actually these ads where you see, like you'd see in a magazine, like a glossy ad of this housewife, and she's opening it because that will get you to, you know, you'll be more, you'll have more energy to do your housework and to do the wash and make dinner. And mm-hmm. I couldn't think out the whole time thinking of the Rolling Stone song, Mother's Little Helper when I when I was doing this. But anyway, it's, it's almost the thought of like how coffee and caffeine are treated. Yes, but the thing about Pervitin, it was the world's first. It's a form of crystal meth. It's a it's a methamphetamine. <laughs> oh God, and. I wanted it, it's very I have to be careful here because I'm no I'm no pharmacist as we all know. So methamphetamine is actually a, a more potent form of amphetamine. That's the difference. Okay. And so when you think of crystal meth, pervitin was kind of like that. So everyone so what happens is there's a doctor named Otto Ranke, is a medical doctor, and he works for the military. And he thought, you know, I wonder if we could give this to soldiers and how that would affect their their um how they fight. Mm-hmm. What could they do? So he did this test on some university students, which I'm sure they didn't mind. <laughs> and <laughs> about 90 of them. And he was, and he, after he took notes on the effects and he thought, yeah, I think we could give this to the troops and that would keep them going. Very scientific. Very scientific. And so when you get, um, and, and and soldiers were already taking this when they invaded Poland, but it's really when they do France and the Low Countries and that when they invade those. But these guy, all these um, soldiers are taking Pervitin. They're not sleeping. I mean, it really, it really boosts the Blitzkrieg. But what's happening is soldiers are abusing it, and doc, military doctors are starting to see the effects the other way. Mm-hmm. That when they would crash and have withdrawals, they were useless. I mean, they couldn't do anything. They would walk around like zombies. They were sick all the time. And it was because, so they started regulating it a little bit, like 1940, 41, 42, to the point where they, they said, all right, from now on, you have to have a doctor's prescription for this. Well, by this time, there were so many tablets that were released, people were just hoarding them and taking them. So, I mean, in 1940, in three months, April, May and June of 1940, that would have coincided with their low countries in France. Uh, I think the 35 million tablets were sent to the front. And they were sending tablets to the Eastern Front when the uh, Germans invaded Russia as well. Mm -hmm. So you have this thing going on. And then later, cocaine was added to it to make it more potent. (laughs) I'm sure that is extremely healthy for everybody involved. (laughs) Right. So when we get back to Hitler... His drug use starts getting worse because this morale is sort of just shooting him up with all kinds of crazy stuff. Most of it was like uh, bull testosterone and things, bovine testosterone and these other solutions. In fact, after the war, his his uh, notes were found and someone tried to make a list of all the different substances. And I saw a fragmentary list that was like 34 of them. Jeez. And yeah. And he, he just trusted his doctor to give him stuff. And other people were telling him, don't trust this guy. This this is like, you know, Dr. Nick Riviera on The Simpsons, you know. I mean, this guy was just... And so what happens is Hitler's taking the Pervitin, too. In fact, sometimes they would give the, the soldiers Pervitin by IV. I mean, they, they wouldn't even take it orally. And so Hitler's getting all this stuff, too. 
because sometimes, you know, he needs a pick me up. Mm-hmm. And it is weird because I, when I was, I was watching the thing on the Nazis like last week and they were showing some of Hitler's speeches and he looks manic sometimes. And I'm thinking, now I'm thinking in my head, was he on something, you know, when he would do these speeches? Cause I know sometimes he would take it to sort of jazz himself up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I don't know if it totally explains it, but as the war goes on, in fact, he starts taking something called Yucadol, which is basically its main ingredient is oxycodone. He, he's really getting the whole smorgasbord <laughs> of <laughs> drugs because we're just getting um, meth, we're getting cocaine, right. we're getting um, oxycodone, we're getting all the drugs, and he's and, getting and really, all of it. And, and Yucadol is a sort of a sister drug of heroin. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, and Oler argues that Hitler never really took a lot of methamphetamine, but he took a lot of Eucadol and he was addicted to it. And actually, Dr. Morrell didn't really want to give it to him at first, but it was in 1943 that he had this big meeting with Mussolini, and he was just feeling down and, you know, what can I do? And source, when you take this stuff, it gives you this feeling of invincibility. It gives you this feeling of euphoria. Mm-hmm. And now it kind of explains why, you know, people would go to meet the Fuhrer, Hitler, and he would ramble on for hours on end. Was he, you know, he would talk three hours nonstop without a break. Was he becoming manic because of all the drugs that were, I mean, and it is documented that these were given to him because, like I said, Morel took meticulous notes that people went through after the war. And so... When he starts taking the Yucadol, then, and you can see this in pictures of Hitler. But now the problem with this kind of evidence is, is this because he's abusing drugs from his doctor or the stress of war? I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons why he looks the way he does. And that's part of the why, like, the book, the theory isn't necessarily extremely accepted. Right. Oler is not a historian, and mm-hmm. that's not anything against him because a lot of non-historians write history. Journalists write a lot of history. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, he's a, actually a detective fiction writer. He's a mystery writer in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, of the le- some of the leading scholars like, um, oh gosh, Richard Overy, and I'm trying to think of the other guy's name, but I really like him, and I can't think of his name, but it's okay. <laughs> They think this is just a small part of it, that Oler took a small thing and made it into this big thing. Yeah. And there's a certain truth to that. I don't think Hitler's attitude toward the Jews would have changed, whether he was straight or not. Um, he certainly doubled down in the war, later war years where when they were losing, he just tended to ramp up the genocide, mm-hmm. extermination. Could that have been caused by his delusions that were starting to happen? I don't think so. I mean, you can go back to earlier, and he said, you know, if, we, if there's another war that one thing's for certain, the Jews will be destroyed, you know, paraphrasing. Or even go back to Mein Kampf, which he wrote in 1925, pretty much lays out all the things. So I think the ideology was there. Yeah, and that that is, that I think is probably, there, there are kind of two things that are both true. Um, yes. The boat yes. The, that his ideology doesn't seem to be caused by drug rampant drug use. <laughs> right. But there was a lot of rampant drug use. Is also right. True. Right. And, and and it could have led to his some of the crazy things that were happening at the end of the war, where he would sit in a room in his bunker 
and do all these things with maps and order these guys to send this this division in and that div- there were no divisions they were all defe- they were all getting wiped out mm-hmm. especially in April of 45 and March so he's he's further and further from reality yeah and he was also a lot of medical historians think he was suffering from parkinson's disease because his, he had so many tremors and all these stuff, and he was stooped over. He looked like a physical wreck now. Was he a wreck? See, that's, all, that's sort of the tantalizing thing about this. Yeah, it, it's a, an important distinction is kind of the correlation causation um, falsity because right. there's probably a lot of factors going into um, Hitler's state of being at, this, at that time. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, but, I mean, it seems fairly inarguable that the drug use is a right. part, but can't be the whole. And one thing we've talked about on this show is that the Nazi leadership, what what they expected out of the citizenry mm-hmm. was not to do these things because they were pure. They wanted to be a pure Aryan. We're the supermen. I mean, look at them. They're not supermen. You almost, you almost chuckle if it's not so tragic. Yeah. You got a guy like Goering who was a morphine addict. Goebbels was a morphine addict. I mean, they were all doing it. So it's almost like, don't do what we're doing. You know, you, we want you not to do this, but then... We're doing it for you. <laughs> that, that It's exactly. it's a f- pretty, it's a logical fallacy, because even Hitler doesn't fit the definition of, of air, like the Aryan race. None of, right, none, so, none of them really do when you think about it. And we talk about this when they went to Tibet. You know, we were talking about Himmler and that, but, but actually to their, not to their, I don't want to say credit, because I don't really like to give them credit for anything. But they were... They were saying, stop taking stuff from... In fact, Himmler had said, oh, I'm feeling run down or something. So uh, this he, Dr. Morell made a lot of money from his association with Hitler. Of course. And so he manufactured these things called Vitamolten, these packets of whatever, supposedly vitamins. And I'm using air quotes, so you can't see it. So, <laughs> uh, so he gave these to Himmler, like a packet of them, and Himmler took it to a university professor you knew to have it analyzed, and sure enough, it was full of methamphetamine. Well, you know, I suppose if I take methamphetamine too, I'm going to feel peppy too for yeah. a while yep. until, you know, until you crash from it, until you come down. And so, <laughs> but what, another thing that was sort of floated around is that because Hitler was on so many of these stimulants, he couldn't sleep at night. So then Morel just started giving him barbiturates to sleep. Well, now you're seeing this. One's working against the other. So he was extremely hard to wake up in the morning. Now, remember on June 6, 1944, on D-Day, the German response was delayed because they couldn't get Hitler out of bed. That's always been the story. Now, was it because of this or because he was a heavy sleeper? No one wanted to try to wake him up because they couldn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's another sort of what if, I suppose. Yeah, it's a weird portion of history where we don't know we can't really know um but it, it this is the, the other part of correlation causation is like something might be there that, right that's always the thing I, I think something's there but is it there there yeah like <laughs> is it the guess. main factor right and that is very difficult to know to know like just capital k no right um but at those final scenes those final days in the bunker were just uh I mean, it was total madness. I mean, everyone was doing everything. It, it, everyone was so 
detached from reality. And, and it, I mean, and you think of how Hitler died. Well, he committed suicide by Eva Braun with poison. So even there, you know, and Dr. Morell was there to administer poison to Joseph uh, Goebbels' children who mm-hmm. were poisoned in a sick way. Uh, they were also poisoned, and then Goebbels, uh, Joseph Goebbels and his wife Magda committed suicide, but they killed their kids first. Mm-hmm. And so that's just madness. I mean, I don't even know how you go, go from that. So the name, that of course, keeps popping up is Dr. Morell. There he um, is. <laughs> so what happens to him? After, like He stays with Hitler through the whole war. Uh Hitler eventually is getting eight to ten injections a week. He's taking about 150 tablets of whatever a week. All prescribed by Dr. Morell. All prescribed by Dr. Morell. And Dr. Morell, I think he likes his being close to the Fuhrer. But then there's a bit of a wrinkle in this story. So after the July 1944 assassination attempt where Hitler sustained an ear wound and throat um, and had a punctured eardrum and stuff. So they brought in a different doctor. His name was Dr. Giesing. Of course, Dr. Giesing came with his own fun because he came with a solution for Hitler's throat, I believe, that was 10% cocaine. So for Now, he took it for 75 days. So for a certain amount of time, Hitler is taking an opioid and he's taking cocaine. So he's basically taking a speedball for mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. And so, because it's basically taking heroin with the cocaine. And so I, how we even survive that is beyond me. But I think you can see it because at, at, eventually Hitler's skin starts turning yellow. And I think it's because his liver is trying to deal with all these toxic materials that are coming and that are coming into his body. And he also is just, like I said, he looks like a total physical wreck, but it could have been just from the stress from the war. Because he was a highly stressful person, I mean. And doctor, there's always been this thing, too, because Dr. Morello always said he was a specialist in venereal diseases. So, of course, people have taken that part of it and run with it and said, well, Hitler must have had some kind of venereal disease that this guy treated him for it. So he, Hitler's getting treated for a lot of different stuff by someone who specializes in not that stuff. Exactly. In fact, his, his specialty was obstetrics and gynecology. Dr. Morell. That's what he was trained in. He was never trained in venereology or, or any of that other stuff. Okay. And so the other, that's why a lot of the other Nazi leadership said, get rid of this guy. He's So what happens is the, he does leave the fear, the fear in, right to the final days says you're going to have to evacuate. So he does. He's captured by the Americans in May of 45. And because of his closeness to Hitler, he's interrogated, but really he committed no crimes. He wasn't involved in any of the crimes of the regime. So he had, they let him go, and he dies in 1948. Wow, he was let go oh, yeah, for all of that. He really, I guess the only person he really hurt was Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, so that was his end. He didn't live long after the war. Like not much of a legacy, not much of a family. I mean, legacy other than giving Well, Hitler actually, the funny thing was he was married. Um, his wife was quite rich, and that's how he set up this practice. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of unconventional theories, and he'd peddle them to the upper classes. So he sort of had this sort of fashionable practice, and that's sort of how Hitler came to know him. 
So it it, would none, it wasn't necessarily his um, highly esteemed work that got him the positions he was in. Right, and then I'm thinking, I wonder what, I mean, he had other patients, well, for a while. I wonder what he was giving them. I mean, it, it's kind of lost to history because he did have a, a thriving practice with many female uh, patients because, of course, if he was in obstetrics and gynecology, of course he would have it. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what he was prescribing to his patients with all this crazy stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed like Hitler was the uh, the guinea pig for some of this stuff. But he willingly did it. I mean, in fact, it got so bad, Hitler would have the train stop, like if they were traveling by train, so Dr. Morell could inject him with a in a w- w- so the car wasn't moving, so he could give him a clean shot. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually Hitler's veins started collapsing and they had such scar tissue on him. He was in just you know he was injecting him in all kinds of places, and so. But there is a postscript to this. Okay. And that is, instead of, once the, the use of Pervitin sort of came down, they kept working on a wonder drug. And that was sort of the thing here with Pervitin, too. Is this a wonder drug? Can we make wonder, you know, soldiers? So they had this idea of these midget submarines that could only be piloted by, they were very small. They were meant to go attack ships, but they could only be piloted by, by short people. Yeah. So you get the Hitler youth, 16, 17-year-olds. And so they came up with a drug called, they were working on a drug called D1X, which was five, five milligrams of Eucadol, five milligrams of Pervitin, and three grams of, three milli, no, three milligrams of Pervitin, five milligrams of cocaine. Okay. Well, what they did is they thought, well, let's not take this, but let's test the cocaine and the, and the um, Pervitin on concentration camp uh, inmates. Mm-hmm. So they would load them up with all this stuff. And then, unfortunately, some of these guys would had marched like 55 miles in a day. and They, they were never allowed to sleep. And, of course, what happens was they, they started seeing that some of these concentration camp uh, experiment, experimentees were dying from this. So what they decided to give these kids was this cocaine gum. And this would keep them awake for days. Well, basically, this was a suicide mission. And today, you can find a lot of these midget subs on the bottom of the North Sea, unfortunately, with some of the remains still in them. And so eh, they, they always seem to double down on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they always looking for that wonder thing, whether it's a wonder weapon, wonder waffle, which I like to say because it sounds smart, or a wonder drug to make you know better soldiers. You know, every time we dig into the Nazis, we always think we've, we have found everything. And something else rears its head where you just shake your head. <laughs> yeah, that they were, they were planning to give kids drugs to go on suicide missions. This, these were basically, they weren't, these subs weren't coming back. I mean, they weren't yeah. really designed for that. And yeah. whether the Hitler youth were told that or not, I have no idea. I mean, that is so much... That is more drugs than I thought we would get into. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's honestly like this sw- swirl of drugs that were just kind of given to Hitler right. soldiers and while being at the same time telling the citizenry, don't do this. Right. Um, and what's interesting is that when you look at after World War II in uh, Western countries, especially during the 1950s, amphetamine is a big, I mean, how many, you know, the diet pills, things of like that. Doctors were always prescribing amphetamines, uh, you know, for pep pills and what they would call that. 
And so I don't think, I think that has always gone on in me. Even today, we don't, we have Red Bull, we have things like that for energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always wonder how much of that was linked to the war, just in the aftermath of the war, using it differently. Now, a lot of people didn't abuse them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that some people had to use them, especially for pain medication. Yeah. Some people had to have it just to you know, be able to live each day. Yep. And they weren't all abusing it, but unfortunately, you know, that always creeps in there. It's, it's similar to talking about, like, opioid crisis, because some people do need yes. that serious of pain relief. Yes. That, that's the thing. But then yes. there's the limit of who gets addicted to it, and right. can they can they get off of it um, right. afterwards? And then we have dilemmas with doctors and all that jazz, but post-war, you've got a lot of soldiers who have been filled up with drugs right. coming home right. um, if they could get home. And then access to drugs is not there, and long-term effects weren't right. studied. And we, and we saw this after the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Many soldiers were addicted to morphine because they were given into it. They were given it for their pain in large quantities, and we didn't. They don't. I don't think the doctors knew much about addiction then, and they were sort of just left on their own devices. Well, they're still addicted to it. They still have their wounds. Especially if they had amputations, those things would bother them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're we not ever going to get a good look into the that part of Hitler's mind on no. being so stressed and drugged up. And, we, I mean, we have those journals, but nothing really else to say about what's right. what's been going on. So it's it's very fascinating that that it colors the whole picture of Hitler in a different light. And, you know, maybe if even if that is not accepted as the main theory, it's very interesting how that possibly could play in. Because if thought. he was this doped up, for lack of a better term, it had to have affected his decision-making, especially at the end. Yeah. And you can kind of see it. Yeah. Now, like I said, is that I don't like doing this whole explaining Hitler kind of thing. I'm doing air quotes again. Because it kind of sometimes when you're trying to explain him, it gets him. He's not the one of agency, but he's the one. Yeah, I mean his. It was his ideology, and everybody else who followed him that led them into this abyss. Yep. So that's where it, that's where it should be laid right at their feet. But you're right. This is an interesting sort of side thing to look at with them. So of course we do explain a lot on this show. <laughs> so Scott. Where are we explaining? Where are we cruising through next time? Well, I thought, well, you know, we've done drugs and all this stuff, and maybe we'll do something a little lighter next time. So I think, think while well, we do mythology again, we'll talk a little about King Arthur. All right. I, we're getting into literature again, and I, I thought am you'd always like a fan. So hopefully we'll get there. Oh, hey, Scott, did you know that listeners can actually contact us now? They can. How can they do that? Yeah, they can just email us at um, historycruise at mykpl.info. Great. Also, like and subscribe on any of the platforms you find this podcast.